Hey, welcome to the Bible Savvy Podcast, a weekly conversation on how to understand, enjoy, and apply God's Word. I'm your host, Nikki Lucas, and I'm joined by Executive Pastor Eric Ferris and Teaching Pastor Clayton Keenan. We're about to jump into another passage from the Bible Savvy Reading Plan, but before we do, guys... Ooh. That sound means it's time for the comma tip of the week earlier than it has ever appeared in an episode. God never changes. That means he is perfectly consistent. And while humans are creatures of habit, we are not necessarily the most consistent creatures. So when it comes to your summer Bible reading... Don't let a missed day or two become a missed week or two. Don't beat yourself up. Just get right back on that horse because we want you to understand, enjoy, and apply your Bible reading. So stick with it this summer. And if you miss a day, that's okay. Get right back at it tomorrow. And this has been your comma tip of the week. All right. That was great. That's a good one. That was a good one. All right. Well, hey, guys, before we actually jump into the passage, I do have another question for you as tradition. Okay, here we go. What is your favorite 90s movie? Now, I'm asking you this because a few episodes back, I asked you what your favorite 80s movie was. So this time we're doing what is your favorite 90s movie? And I, I love this question. When you uh, told us you're going to do this question, we looked up a list of 90s movies, and there were so many. So many. And I, and I realized this, this is when I was in middle school and the beginning of high school for me. So, like, it's the sweet spot for seeing and loving all these movies. Yep. And I, I almost need to answer more from my heart than my, the, my actual taste, right? Like, so, like, Shawshank Redemption came out in the 90s, which is objectively – a great movie. And I should probably pick something like that. It's objectively a great movie. Oh, yes. There's no room for opinion on this. No, no. It's just well, it's objectively it just a great is. movie. Well, TNT yeah. but, thought we should watch it pretty much nonstop for 17 years. But then I looked at like the list of all of the comedies that came out, like the the Tommy Boy and the Dumb and Dumber and, uh, you know, Billy Madison and things that probably were not appropriate for me to watch when I watched them. Um, and, and I'm like, oh, man, those those are terrible movies. But there's there's something there. But my heart answer is this. OK. And it, it's a little bit split. Um, Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. which for me was the first like adult movie I saw in the theater. My my aunt wanted to be the cool aunt, so she like was like, "Can I take Clayton to go see a, like a you know an intense movie?" And I got to see Jurassic Park, and that is like close to my heart. Or the original Mission Impossible, which I rode my bike to the theater three times in like three weeks paid out of my own pocket money I barely had to watch this movie three times. Then I bought it on VHS and watched it all summer long. I love that movie. I recently went back and realized it is so incredibly slow by today's standards that I probably will not ever rewatch it. But my heart says I love Jurassic Park and Mission Impossible. But so. it's, it's still your favorite 90s movie. Oh, yeah. Okay, gotcha. All right, how about you, Eric? Well, I'm scrolling. I mean, The Matrix came out in the 90s? Yeah, there yeah, were some, yeah. there were some uh, sequel-creating movies that came out in the 90s man i'm scrolling through here right now it's hard for me i think i'm going to pick from the comedy category i'm just looking at this. jim carrey liar liar that was that was a good one uh okay i'm going to pick a total cheese ball movie you, you, there is no way that you guys could predict that i'm going to pick this one major pain what oh. <laughs> i did not you, see that do coming you guys at think all. the wayans brothers are funny I, I never was into them, so it's not like There were a couple like movies, a, like that one was good. I, I like like these cheese ball movies that are so bad they're good. And and when you know like the lead actor, uh, like in this movie, like you can just get a sense that while he's playing the part, he's thinking to himself the whole time, this is really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and the dumber the movie gets, the better it gets. So 
I'll I'll go with that. Uh, Major pain. Major it's a very pain. terrible choice, and, and I don't. There's not even any conviction <laughs> behind just, the choice, <laughs> except when I saw the picture. I can just hear him doing this dumb voice. Goes, what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> he talks like that. I love that he entire, also remembers that line. He's got it's quotes. A great he's line. Got quotes. It's a great line. So you were middle school, high school in the '90s. Yeah. So I I was uh, probably like a sophomore in '99. Yeah. Okay. I was I graduated Sophomore high school in ninety two, so I was high school, college, young adult in the nineties. And you I was, were I was elementary, middle school. So we're like exact life stages. You're yeah. elementary, middle. You're middle high, and I was high school, college, young adult. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. What, what's your What's your movie, Nikki? So my movie is the early nineties Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle trilogy. <laughs> oh my gosh! So the first one came out in ninety. The second one came out in 91. The third one came out in 93. If I had to pick one of the three, it would be the second one. It's called The Secret of the Ooze. Okay. I was six years old. That tells when, you everything you need to know. Yeah, this might I was be worse than my old. choice. You might be. When, when this movie came out, Vanilla Ice is in it. Okay. Yes. This is the one that Vanilla Ice is in. Um, but I would come home every day from school. I would get changed in comfy clothes and I would lay down on the floor in front of the TV, the entertainment center. And I would watch this movie. I had the VH- VHS tape, right? And I literally wore that thing out. I would watch it every day. Oh, my gosh. Day. I would not go out and play with my friends or do anything else until I got home, had a snack, and watched this movie. Oh, my god. That's goodness. how serious Nikki. it was. I had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirt that I would wear every single day. My mom would have to fight me. Is this the, like so this to, is like elementary age? Yes. Like, I was like, like fifth grade? I was six, yeah, sixth I was, grade? I was six years old. No, I was- Oh, no, I, yeah, oh so yeah, yeah. little, little. I was little. Okay. okay. And I would I wore this thing out. There was like holes in it, like after <laughs> a month of having it. So I, I'm, a, I'm a diehard TMN fan. Oh, oh, my goodness. All right. I kept scrolling- and I want to retract my super lame choice. Oh, you, you got a good one? Because, I mean, I admit it, I don't stand by my choice with any conviction. Jumanji came out in the 90s. Jumanji. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, the pretty, original that, one. That was Robin pretty, Williams. That was a pretty stellar movie. Yeah. Uh, and then I just saw in 99, the first of the Mummy movies came out. Yeah, I've I, never I've never seen I enjoy the Mummy all movies. I like all those <gasps> is it action. Bre- is it Brendan movies? Fraser? Like those yeah. those comedy slash adventure yeah. type movies. I like those. The last Brendan Fraser movie I saw was probably Encino Man. So <laughs> Which probably came out in the nineties. Also out, in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah, all right. We should probably get into the Yeah, Bible. that's we can talk about this all day. Go ahead, Clayton. What all are we right. talking about? <laughs> so uh now for something completely different. Uh Isaiah. Uh, we are in Which I- was not written in the nineteen nineties. No. no. Uh, we're in Isaiah chapter 54. Let me give you a little bit of context here for this passage. The book of Isaiah has a really big break. We talked about this last episode, right about chapter 40. So there, in chapter 40 and beyond, you have a whole bunch of chapters that are about Israel's restoration after all of the trouble they've gone through. So exile to Babylon, all of the invasions and the things that Isaiah was talking about before. This is what happens after that. And Isaiah is looking way ahead of his time to this time of restoration. And so you get some of these really beautiful passages trying to capture the feeling and the experience of what it's going to be like for God to restore his people. And this is one of those. Uh, I think one of the keys to understanding this passage uh, and this whole section is really thinking about poetry, uh, because what we're talking about is uh, imagery and things that uh, get emotion and imagination, not just your mind. And so that's going to be important as we read this. All right, so I'm reading the entire chapter, which is 17 verses, Isaiah 54. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy. 
you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your fountains with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals in the flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me declares the Lord. All right. Let's talk about the O in comma, which is observation. What do you guys see here? The first word picture I see is in in verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. So it's talking about stretching the the curtains wide and and lengthening the cords, which gives me the visual of a bigger and bigger tent, right? So it's uh, after an experience of their territory shrinking and feeling like everything kind of closed in on them, all of a sudden there's going to be wide open spaces. Yeah, for me, um, the passage was kind of confusing because I had no idea who, like, I was like, what? What is is he talking about? And so, again, went to the study note, and, you know, obviously he's talking now. Obviously he's talking to Israel, you know what I mean? And and he's he's not actually talking to a barren woman. He's talking to the people of Israel. Um, And so I think when you read that, it kind of hits you out of nowhere, that, that first couple, and you're like, what is he talking about? But, uh, yeah, that makes sense, especially when, when what just Eric just said, too, about, about their territory being shrunken and then him, you know, spreading it out. But the other thing that I'm looking at here is uh, this repeating phrase of, like, disgrace, shame, and then compassion, restoration, mercy. Uh, so Israel was in disgrace and in shame, and then God brought about their restoration because of his compassion. So to me, that's just like, there's this 
repeating thing. Yeah, that repeated word of disgrace and shame, it's actually connected to that image of the barren woman who who didn't have children, because in that society, that would have been one of the feelings that would have been associated with that. Uh, in a society, whether we you know, uh, you know know appreciate this or not, in that world, they would have said, here is one of the things that uh, if your woman is sort of expected or uh, kind of a thing that brings you honor or kind of the way you contribute is you raise children. And to not have a child, either for whatever circumstances, um, was something that for a lot of women uh, today, but especially then, brings a sense of shame, disgrace, something's wrong with me, something uh, is not right. And uh, so that feeling would have been there. That, that's what is supposed to be evoked of this feeling of Israel was in this place of feeling uh, shamed and disgraced in that way. Um, but it also is an image that goes back to the very beginning of Israel's history. So uh, if, if you're thinking, okay, where are stories in the Bible where there are women who can't have a baby? And there are a whole bunch of them, especially at the beginning of their story. So you've got Sarah, who is Abraham's wife, too old to have a baby. Rebecca, the, in the next generation, can't have a baby. Rachel, in the next generation, can't have a baby. And there's there's uh, probably a half dozen or so significant characters who cannot have children, and it is part of that kind of anguish of, uh, of saying, how are we going to have a future? Because God had promised, you're going to have children, and these children are going to become the nation, and the nation's going to bless the world, but there were no children. And it could have stopped with one generation of not being able to have kids. And in some ways, Israel's in that kind of situation right now, where they're saying, we're cut off in a way that it looks like there's no future for us, and we have no way of knowing where that's going to come from. And God's saying, just like I gave a child to Sarah, just like I took care of Rebecca, just because, you know, in the same way I did this for these women, I'm going to do that for the nation as a whole. You are not going to be barren with no future. Uh, you're going to have something to look forward to. Yeah, it's fun. To, it's fun to think about the fact that God can always beat the odds. And what I mean by that is if you looked at a barren woman or a woman who does not have a husband— and you compared her to a healthy woman who does have a husband, and you asked, who is more likely to have a family? You're always going to pick the healthy woman who has a husband, of course. But that isn't always necessarily true with God. God can say, as in verse 1, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. That makes no sense unless God is doing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's something. It's obviously a, uh, an image here for something. It's meant to have that emotion and that 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 kind of you know imaginative value. But there's also something really interesting that that happens in the future. Like when Jesus comes, the shift actually happens in, in, a, in a fairly literal way of saying even those who are not married and don't have children in the kingdom of God, in in a in a very real sense, have the offspring and influence and impact. That in that society, they would have associated with that. So you get in the New Testament, people are saying, this is no longer the thing that anchors me to, am I a contributor to what God's doing in the world? Um, it's people saying, no, it's the influence I have and the, the, the impact in evangelizing or discipling or uh, serving people. That's where that comes from. So it actually comes through in a very uh, literal way. What else do you see? Uh, verse six, uh, he says, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. And when I looked at the study notes, it referred to the Israelites being in exile. So it's that idea that they were went away and they did feel deserted by God. And in a sense, he says, he said, I, for a brief moment, I did abandon you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. And um, again, it's just that picture of eventually he did, after a, a period of time, he did return uh, them to the promised land. And so uh, that's a cool picture when you, when you're able to uh, 
look at the story of the exile and then the restoration of the people of Israel and then see how it's compared to a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. Like it's, it's really poetic and figurative. Like you'd never, I would never understand what he's talking about if I would never, if I didn't have the study notes of the, in this yeah, passage. It does help. It does help. Yeah, Nikki, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about verse seven here too. It says, for a brief moment, I abandon you, which, which when we look at that historically, retrospectively, we say, okay, yeah, the, the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon for a period of time, a relatively brief period of time. But let's just remind ourselves of how many years this was. Uh, So Babylon, the empire of Babylon, uh, takes the people of Israel into captivity in 586 BC. That's when they're conquered and taken into exile. Then the Persian empire rises up and conquers the Babylonian empire. So now there's a new chief in town. It's King Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus makes a decree in 539 BC to let the people of Israel return to their homeland. So you have 586 to 539, which is 47 years, right? Did I just do that math right? 586. I I lost track of the numbers. 586 to 539. 40-ish years? Who can do 43? math? 43? It's 47 years. 40, which, well, it's more than 40 years. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> 40 plus. 86. So, so I think so so I'm right. Somebody's 86 like... to... Yeah, I think I'm right. Okay. Okay, <laughs> anyway. We can retrospectively say, well, that's just a brief amount of time. This is 47 yeah. years. So when you're in it, and God says something like, yeah, sure, for a brief moment I abandon you to teach you, you know, teach you a lesson, but my compassion is everlasting. It certainly doesn't feel brief when it's happening to you. Yeah, and the reality is mm-hmm. even when some people came back, so if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, that's, that's that story when some people are coming back. It's a small group of people. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of people in Israel st- were still living somewhere in Babylon or someplace scattered around the world for a long, long time after that. And so, uh, you know, subsequent empires came, and even in Jesus's day, they're saying, "Well, when is you know when are we really going to be restored?" So, there, it it didn't feel like that. Yeah, but verse eight, you see that mm-hmm. a short, brief moment I abandoned you, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness. It's the it's the kindness of the Lord that endures, and that's the that's the part we miss because we think that His anger is the thing that is most definitive. That when when there when we are in trouble, that that is the thing that's like, ugh, it's it's we're, we're stuck here. But the reality is, the kindness of God is goes way 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 beyond, infinitely beyond whatever short time God's angry with us. Infinite would be true because He says everlasting, it's, it's everlasting kindness. Yeah. Well, and then you you look at verse nine. He he talks about you know he talks about Noah and the and the whole uh, story where at the end of Noah he says I'm never going to do this disaster again. I'm not going to flood the world. Um, but then he says, I've sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Now, some of that you say, well, well, God got angry about some things after that, right? Um, but the point was, there will come a time where the anger of the Lord, the wrath of God, will, will be done away with. And we talk about that with Jesus, right? That, that what he did for us is he made it so there's no more judgment. There's no more wrath left for us in our sin. If, if, if we have received Christ, that's true for us. And there will come a day when all wrath will be done away with forever. And so um, we tend to think of that as like, oh, God's angry all the time. And it's like, actually, this is a blip on the radar for him. It's a very, very small part of God's experience to be angry at sin. His kindness, his compassion, that's everlasting. In previous episodes, we were talking about how hard it is to 
situate what Isaiah is talking about on a timeline, right? Is he talking about now? Is he talking about the near future? Is he talking about way off in the distance of the future? And when you read a chapter like Isaiah 54, I don't know if this happens in your heart and mind, but it certainly does in mine. I'm thinking about two points in time at the same time. One one is the historical event of Israel returning from exile. I'm also thinking about way off in the future, like new heavens, new earth, uh, consummated kingdom of God type stuff and what that's going to be like. Is that does that happen to you when you're reading Isaiah yeah. 2? Well, it's like it's like three parts because it's the return from exile. It's also what happened when Jesus showed up. Because Jesus quotes a lot of these things, and the, the New Testament authors say this happened with Jesus, and then there's the new heavens, new earth at the end. So it's almost like I, we've used that that mountain analogy. The mountain in the tops. Past. Yep, three mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right? we, in this case, it would be three mountain tops. Yeah. And when you're looking along it, it can all kind of blur together. But on the side, you can see that they're distinct things that are going on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we mm-hmm. remind ourselves that Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom of God. When he showed up, he said, "The kingdom of God is now here. I brought it." Uh, and then you have the consummated kingdom of God, which is when he comes again and makes everything, all all sin, death, and evil is done away with for good, and you have the consummated kingdom. Yeah, I thought about that in verse verses 11, um, when it talks about how he's going to rebuild, uh, rebuild the city with all these jewels and all that stuff, and how it talks about all of that in Revelation 21, 10. Um, that, that's the picture that I get. It, it, that's the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. Um, I wasn't reading that with Jerusalem back in the day in mind. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's very clear. Like you can read about them rebuilding the wall and the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's, I'll tell you, it's, it's not rubies. Yeah. It's not lapis lazuli. It's yeah. not turquoise. Like it's, 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 it's so uh, inferior even to what they had previously, which wasn't this great, that the old men who had seen the original temple before it was destroyed are weeping at how how like paltry and poor and frail what they had built was. They're happy about it, but there's like a sense of, oh, it's not what we hoped. It's not it's not the it's not the dream of the future that we long for. This is still to come. Yeah, another observation I had was so in fifteen, um, he starts by saying, If if anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Um, whoever attacks you will surrender to you. And then jump down into sixteen he says, And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc um and so to me i was like you you created a destroyer to wreak havoc now i'm assuming he's talking about assyria and and babylon um yep he did it twice yeah, yeah. but well, two big times more times than that but these were the two big ones yeah but i it, it struck me that was something striking to me to to have him say i have created the destroyer to wreak havoc yeah, it's it's a weird tension as you read. I mean, you could you can actually get this through the whole book of Isaiah. There are these moments like uh, early on in the book, I think chapter 10 or 11, somewhere around there, there there's a part where it's like, yeah, Syria is going to come in and do this thing. And then I'm going to uh, punish Assyria for doing the thing. And you're like, well, wait, wait, which is it? Are you going to use Assyria or are you going to punish Assyria for the invasion? Well, both of those things, both of those things. And yes, there, there, there's this part that really bothers us. We want it to be clear, clean, right? That God never gets his hands dirty. Whatever thing that, that happened that was painful or, or even sinful, he had no you know, shaping of how it went down. But we also, you know, like, we, like the punishing part, like, well, if you use them, well, isn't it okay? Well, no, 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 no. So there is a, there's kind of a, a tension that's here. Um, but in this passage, he's saying, 
yeah, there have been deliberate moments where I've used the nations for specific purposes to discipline my people. Future attacks, when it says it will not be my doing, it's not saying, well, God's just didn't see it coming or whatever, you know, it's not, not something like that. It's saying, no, these will not be those sorts of threats. It will not be my hand of discipline on you. It will be a, a threat that I will defend you from. And so there is this like weird tension of saying some of the circumstances that come into the lives of God's people are God deliberately doing something to say, I got to get your attention. I need you to respond. This is a consequence. And other things that are the things that go on in the world and God is there to defend us from them. And that that's hard for people, especially when you try to apply it to anything particular in your own life. Yeah, Nikki, you spent some time in some Pentecostal churches, right? Mm-hmm. So verse 17, no weapon formed against you will, yep. will prevail. Or, yep. you know, in Pentecostal songs, you it's always prosper. prosper. Yeah. No weapon formed <laughs> against you will prosper. Uh, you will refute every tongue that accuses you. So the, these verses often get uh, get talked about in spiritual warfare mm-hmm. type categories, right? It doesn't matter what what, what demonic is. forces come against you, what the enemy's trying to do in your life. No weapon formed against you will prosper. You can stand strong. Uh, this is a armor of God type, you know, New Testament type language. Uh, you will refute every tongue that accuses you. So you start talking about Satan as an accuser and a liar, and you're going to be able to stand and stand your ground and, and prosper. And then, then it says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Uh, it is true. Right, but in, in Pentecostal circles, you would get you would get more of the spiritual warfare type conversations about this text. Yeah, and that's that's not uh, as far fetched as it seems, but from the context here, when when you're talking about uh, the nations that would come against Israel, there are other passages that uh, indicate there are spiritual battles going on behind the scenes. That the war between nations and the war between God and the evil forces that that oppose Him, the spiritual forces that oppose Him. Are in parallel, like they're they're going going on together. So um, it's not a complete misapplication to to transfer that to that kind of thing. But it's specifically saying, look, if Assyria comes against you, it's not because it's a punishment for me. They might say you're in the wrong, but at this point, you're not because I'm done. I'm done uh, condemning you for these things. And I, just as too, like Eric saying, the other thing that I that I know in running in those circles in the past is that. You're talking about like natural consequences, and then you're talking about like discipline from the Lord, right? So sometimes in those circles, everything is a discipline from the Lord. So if something bad happens, oh, you must have done something wrong because like God must be punishing you right now. Like He must be trying to teach you something right now. When it could just really be, it's it's a consequence of your own action, not necessarily something that God is trying to punish you with. Or, you know or, what I mean? Or just something going on in the world, like just yeah. S- yeah. strict circumstances. They don't necessarily mean something every time. It's just rough stuff. <laughs> yeah, and just and just for clarification yes, here, clarification. yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't mean to say that as if I thought it was a complete misapplication of those oh, verses. No, no. Uh, I I was ordained in the Assemblies of God. I, I was an ordained Assemblies of God Pentecostal pastor. I've pastored in charismatic churches, so I I don't want to sound like I'm saying that spiritual warfare and no. those things are not true, and that that would be a misapplication. I was simply acknowledging the fact that both Nikki and I spent yeah. time in yes. Pentecostal you probably churches, heard that quoted. <laughs> and we've heard these, all the time. Hear, these are the kinds of yeah. verses that you hear a lot in Pentecostal churches. Yeah. yeah, and I and I agree with you in saying that that's all right and good and true. And then sometimes they can be taken out of context. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's move on to one of the M's in common. Let, let's talk about message. Okay, so this is where we take something we've seen, 
try to sum it up in a sentence or two to get uh, an idea of what principle we could apply to our lives. So the message that I got out of this is that God is compassionate to restore the disgraced and the shamed. Okay, for my message, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to go to another place in the Bible for my message. I'm going to go to Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. So sure, we're going to go through seasons where the Lord needs to discipline us, but it's just a moment. But our God is loving and we have his favor. Uh, My message is when God's done accusing, everyone's done accusing. It's that idea that the one who really has a charge against us would be God. And when he's decided the discipline, the punishment is over and he's not holding it against us, that means no one else can accuse us of those things either. All right, let's talk about the next M in comma, which is meditation. Meditation is where we go from simply looking at the text, talking about the text, thinking about it, and actually interact with God about this text, where we prayerfully ponder some portion of it. I think verse 10 is a good one for us to, to meditate on, although there, really this whole chapter is full of great verses to, to really slow down and pray about. But let me read this one to you, and I'll give you 45 seconds to prayerfully ponder it. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed." says the Lord, who has compassion on you. All right, let's talk about the A and comma, which is application. What do we do in response to this? So based on my message, uh, because God is compassionate to restore the disgraced and the shamed, um, my application is that we can boldly um, come to him and we can ask ourselves, what do we need to bring to God for his compassionate restoration? And we can trust that he'll do it. My application is to minimize the length of time between your spanking and the hug. Wow. That's really so, good. So do you remember like when you were a kid and you were being disciplined by your parents and, and it's like you – there's this period of time where it's just awkward, right? And then eventually your parents give you a hug or something happens and you're like, okay, we're good again, right? Like uh, so when it comes to the Lord and you're, and you're repenting and you need a spanking, if you need to get the spanking – just take the spanking, right? If if you if the Lord rebukes you, you repent, you confess. Don't run away, right? The Father's there. You have His favor. He is ever has everlasting kindness. There's a hug waiting for you. So minimize the time between the spanking and the hug. Well, my message uh, when God's done accusing, everyone's done accusing. Um, the the experience of it, though, is not that case, right? So, like, it seems like when God has disciplined you, so the, the hug has happened, right, that, that that Eric was talking about, there is a tendency for 
uh, our sin and our, our shame to come back and say, but really, are you worthy? Really, are you okay? Does God really love you? Is, has he really fully forgiven you? Or is he just sort of, you know, tolerating that? All of those different things that that the enemy uses to say, no, 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 you can't be near to God. You can't trust him. You're not, you're not restored. You still have disgrace. Um, those things are there. It's the equivalent of the nation that comes and attacks Israel, and Israel looks and says, is this God disciplining us again? And God's saying, no, 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 that's not for me. I, I've, I've said I'm done with that. And that means whatever accusation comes out saying, hey, don't you deserve this? That actually isn't true because it's not from God. He has forgiven you definitively. So the application is to say, um, to actually refute those lies, to actually say that isn't true. Um, It may feel like that. It may come out that way. um, But I've got to come back again and again and say, I got the hug. You know what I mean? The spanking happened. I got the hug. And my parents aren't like now holding that over my head anymore. Uh, God has forgiven me. And I got to remember that. All right. Well, there you have it, friends. Thanks for listening this week. Join us next Monday for a new episode. We'll be looking at another passage from the Bible Savvy Reading Plan. In the meantime, if you're not following along, you can check out BibleSavvy.com to download it and start reading. Also, you can subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Email us your questions or suggestions at podcast at BibleSavvy.com. Lastly, tell your friends, and we'll talk to you next week.